We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. I am so excited today to be joined again by Dr. Pierre Corey, one of the leading champions in this fight and really someone that has continually educated himself and the the medical community about COVID-19 and about various forms of treatment, not only COVID-19, the acute disease, but our virus, but also uh, long haul COVID and vaccine injured. So welcome so much uh, coming back, Dr. Pierre Corey. Thanks, Laura. Good to be back. Uh, So today I know you're doing, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing right now, because I know things continue to evolve. Um, We know that the CDC just came out, what was it last week with some new guidelines about how to treat uh, the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated, which is essentially the same at this point. They've recommended uh, no quarantining if you've been exposed to COVID. So what they've done, in my opinion, is they've really um, backed off quite a bit in terms of the previous guidelines that were incredibly stringent. And I think we can probably both agree. I don't know that they were that effective. No. Um, so, so tell me what you're doing right now as it relates to COVID-19 long haul and vaccine injured. Yeah. So, you know, my practice, uh, my, my private practice is, is totally geared at treating vaccine injured and, and long haul. I mean, there, there's a really an epidemic of, of patient suffering, um, not only from the vaccines, which is just immense amount of pay people, uh, but long haul, right? It's, you know, estimated about 30% of patients after COVID will have persistent symptoms after recovery. Um, and, and they're kind of they're they're kind of diverse and sometimes quite complex and 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 actually odd. Um, so what we're doing, I mean, if you look at what we've done as the FLCCC, I mean, we really started focusing on treatment in the hospital, right? That was back in in the spring of 2020. We came up with a hospital protocol. Later on, we developed uh, an early treatment protocol centered around, you know, ivermectin as well as a number of other effective drugs. And, you know, those protocols are solid. I mean, they're highly effective. They work, you know, we've made a couple little adaptations, but I mean, they're pretty much finished. And we did have a long haul protocol, like we put up in June of of 2021. So over a year ago, and we did mention that it was applicable to vaccine injury. But what we've learned is, uh, first of all, like I said, the numbers of people suffering is immense. And there is no treatment. There is no treatment protocol. No one's putting that out. There are long haul COVID clinics at a lot of the academic medical centers, but I see a lot of the patients who've been to those centers and, and the stories they tell me is just miserable. I mean, right. first of all, if they mention vaccine, they're oftentimes shunned, dismissed, uh, rejected. I have numerous anecdotes of patients who literally the physicians say, you don't have to make a follow-up and and they don't offer them follow-up appointments because they just don't want to deal with it or they don't believe in it. Or as soon as you mention a vaccine injury, they think the person's crazy. So 
So, so, and the others for the long haulers, all I hear is endless referrals, endless testing, and no treatments offered. Very little mm -hmm. treatments offered. Every once in a while, you'll find like, uh, like a, a drug called, you know, uh, gabapentin, which you know treats some of the nerve inflammation. But that's about right. the extent of what the, that I've heard well, being offered. Let me ask you a question as it relates to probably both vaccine injury and also long haul. Aren't some of the let me back up. What are the symptoms that you're seeing yeah. in these types of patients? Because as I understand it, they can be somewhat hard to identify and somewhat synonymous with a myriad of other issues that might be going on in terms of the, that patient's health. Yeah. So, so this is how I define the, the two diagnoses I define as follows. It's, I define them as a constellation of symptoms it's really a constellation. It's never really just one. There's usually multiple uh, issues that pop up in these patients um, that begin temporally associated to either COVID or the vaccination. Um, and then I see combinations of them because, you know, we, we called the conference, you know, um, understanding and treating uh, spike protein induced diseases. And, and I have to say that that title is probably not as comprehensive as it should be because although we know the spike protein is a pathogen, it's something that causes illness, we also recognize that the lipid nanoparticle is also uh, also a pathogen and causing some of the symptoms. And we're still learning like what the relative contribution of the components of the vaccine are causing illness. Um, but when you talk about what, what it looks like or, or what the disease is, so the constellation of symptoms, so central to really both syndromes, it's very much like chronic fatigue. Um, that's probably the most common complaint I see is that patients, they find their energy levels completely depleted. They just don't have energy to do anything. They feel tired. They often want to lay down and nap. Many of them were previously healthy and active. They have to fight that because they're not used to being you know, bed bound or house bound. And, and sure. so besides, besides fatigue, but closely associated, which is one of the cardinal symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome is something called post-exertional malaise, which is when they do start or try to do an activity, their mm -hmm. fatigue gets worsened and all of the other symptoms that they have also are flared. And so they're very limited in their functioning. And then Probably the third most common is some amount of what's called brain, what we call brain fog, right? So they just find that they have some deficits either in memory or concentration or processing of tasks. And, and, and they're really disturbed by this because they feel like their brains aren't working. And then, mm -hmm. you know, associated with brain fog is we also see a lot of anxiety and depression that are occurring in people who didn't have that before, or if they had forms of that before, it's ramped up. And then in particular with the vaccine injured, much more so than the long haulers is what they get a host of what I call neuropathic symptoms. And one of the conditions that they get is something called small fiber neuropathy. Neuro and the small fiber neuropathy is the, the tiny little nerves and nerve endings that are just underneath the skin. And they mediate sensations of like cold, heat, um, uh, pain, um, you know, tingling. And so when those are inflamed, Patients talk about feeling like they're on fire, their arms are burning, oh, or they wow. feel electric shock-like feelings, or prickly feelings, or cold sensations, and and, it, and it's very distressing to them. And so mm -hmm. um, that's probably the other cluster. And then the, the fourth would be um, POTS, or what's called postural orthos orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's when they can't, the, the body, which automatically controls our heart rate and blood pressure, mm -hmm. suddenly they lose control. And I have patients who sitting in bed will have a resting heart rate of like 120. 
and, yeah. and or when they get up or move around, they get really lightheaded, they get dizzy. And, and that's like documented. I mean, you can mm -hmm. see how their blood pressure drops when they stand up. You can see how their heart rate, how their hearts are racing. And so, it, you know, that, that we kind of categorize as dysautonomia. So, um, and again, those are all things, except for the neuropathic symptoms, those are all things described in chronic fatigue syndrome, which has been associated mm -hmm. with a lot of infections. So that's kind of like a well, little of what they're suffering from. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you were a patient and you went to a doctor and you said, you know, doctor, I've been tired for so long, or I've had headaches, or I, you know, I feel like I've got some anxiety or depression or my, or my heart's racing. Those symptoms um, are not necessary. I would imagine at least from a medical practitioner's uh, perspective, you wouldn't necessarily say that's long haul or that's vaccine injury, unless uh, the medical practitioner themselves has the training to understand and recognize um, that it could, in fact, be long haul or vaccine injury. Agreed. So what, here's what I would say about that is the patients generally know. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, I do. You know, some of the patients who come to see me with vaccine injury, they didn't recognize it as being associated with the vaccine for a long time because sometimes the delay between the vaccination and the symptoms. So I kind of put them into three categories. Some of my patients, their symptoms began within minutes to hours of the vaccine right. and never stopped. In fact, if anything, mm -hmm. they just got worse over time. So that those, those folks, they know it was the vaccine and they can tell mm -hmm. a clinician that, listen, I was fine before the vaccine and this is what happened. Those are pretty mm -hmm. inarguable. Others, they might have a rough time around the vaccine, you know, like maybe headaches or fevers or chills, but that goes away. And then they get symptoms like later on that week or 10 days. And then I have others where it's a few weeks out before suddenly weird symptoms start to happen. So mm -hmm. if you take a history, most patients are able to relate the, the start of all these symptoms with an event like a vaccination or COVID. But, right. but when you're, the point that, I, that you're making, which I want to you know, emphasize is that even if they recognize that this was triggered by COVID, they have no training or understanding as to why the symptoms are the way they are. They don't know the mechanisms. They don't even, they're not even being taught what a spike protein, uh, what, what the mechanisms of illness caused by the spike protein is. And so, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't say I feel, well, I guess I'll say I feel bad for a lot of clinicians because I do think doctors really do want to help their patients. But they are helpless in doing that because they have no training or understanding. And here, here's the deal, uh, Laura. This conference that we're putting on, right? It's, it's a treatment, uh, you know, understanding and treating uh, spike protein-induced diseases. Is again, we feel like we're filling a void in the health system, which is the health system is not. There's no body of study. There's no uh, scientific or medical discipline that is completely focused on learning how how it causes illness and how to treat those illnesses. And so we are, we see that void. We see that in our patients. We see that in our supporters. And so we're trying to do the best we can by bringing the most up-to-date knowledge we have in, in, in the understanding and treatment. Well, I think what you're doing, let's, let's uh, back up for a second and actually talk about the conference, because I think what you're doing is amazing. Um, I actually had a chance to look a little bit at the details and I am very excited. I think it's incredibly necessary to your point, the medical profession um, at, at this point is not even, I think, acknowledging vaccine injury in the way that they should, let alone offering a medical pathway of learning 
um, to, to help these patients. So tell us about the conference, because it's really, really important that people understand that this conference is happening and it's more than just one conference. Um, I understand it's a series and, and, and I, who's the, the right person that should be going to this type of conference? Well, I would say it really is targeted at physicians and nurse practitioners, any care provider who comes, you know, who's going to be faced with patients coming in with these kind of complaints and relating it to one of those events. And mm -hmm. so it really is targeted at them. I mean, we're going to talk about, you know, we have we have numerous lecturers and, and the people that we've invited are really uh, from our network of mm -hmm. clinicians that we've collaborated and many of them deeply studied on numerous topics. They come from different specialties, whether it's mm -hmm. endocrinology, neurology, um, lots of uh, general medicine, internal medicine folks. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and really some uh, quite a few are those with a lot of experience in treating complex chronic illness. You know, things like reactivated Lyme and chronic mm -hmm. fatigue syndrome. And so, so uh, you know, the group that's coming, um, really, we're just trying to share our experiences and, and, and insights. And, you know, to, to the point you just made, I mean, there are long haul clinics, there are no vaccine injury clinics, you know, and so, right. but the vaccine injured are there, whether there's a clinic or not. And so we're, right. we're really, it's targeted at providers, but I do believe lay people are interested and will come. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, my experience in the pandemic is, so many lay people are deeply studied on numerous aspects of COVID and they're far more knowledgeable than a lot of physicians. And, and so I almost see, I almost see a lot of the lay people having to bring the physicians along. So, so maybe they want to learn all this advice so they can actually guide their physician. Like, listen, this is what I think will help me, you know? And so. Sure. We're, well, I mean, for, I, I talked about this in the past on the podcast and maybe you and I have even spoken about this. I know I personally, when, when vaccine programs started being deployed into the human population, the first thing that I did was I went to my doctor and said, tell me if you believe in this vaccine or not. Tell me if you believe in the safety and the efficacy. And the answer that I immediately got was, yes, I believe in the vaccine. Yes, I believe in vaccines in general. And of course, my next natural question was, well, how do you as a medical practitioner educate yourself about the effectiveness, about the safety of these vaccines? And of course I was never given an answer, but to your point, it's really incumbent on the patients, the lay person to uh, be attuned with their own medical care and ask these questions of their practitioners. And, and you can do it in a way that's not, you know, con confrontational or argumentative. Uh, but I think it's a really important question that, that everyone who's listening to this podcast should be asking of their medical practitioners. And I think that everyone should encourage their medical practitioners to go to a con this conference and to seek out this information so that they're armed with the ability to treat patients. Because I think they're going to see patients regardless of, of um, the uh, type of medicine that, that you practice. I think that you will, as a medical practitioner, come across a patient that has these types of symptoms and is suffering from either vaccine injury or from long haul. I think we just know that now. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and I, like I said, when I hear these anecdotes of, of these encounters of my patients with, because many of them have seen numbers of doctors before they get to me. Um, mm -hmm. And when I hear these encounters, I mean, I can tell, like you said, I, the physicians just don't know what to do. I mean, they, they mm -hmm. have no understanding. And so you're, you're right. Uh, I think people can help their doctors along. But, you know, you also mentioned, Laura, you know, without being confrontational, you know, you want to be deferential. But it's 
day. That's a tough situation for most physicians to manage. They, they mm-hmm. most physicians by definition know more than you, at least they think they do, right? And so <laughs> I would hope the, so, at least. <laughs> when the patient tries to educate the physician, it's, you know, many are don't lack the humility, uh, you know, to understand yeah. that they, they, they might have a deficit in their knowledge right. base on some issues. And so um, well, I, would I, I hope so that they're going to, they're going to reach out, listen, or, or even stream afterwards. I mean, we're going to have the lectures available uh, afterwards, uh, you know, for viewing. Right. Well, I, I, to highlight what you just said, I would agree. Look, we're talking about um, an industry where you've got, you've had a tremendous amount of education, a tremendous amount of specialty training. So of course it goes without say that, um, that the doctor should and does have more knowledge as it relates to their field of medicine than the patient that's coming to see them. But that being said, I would hope that um, everyone involved and more in particularly the medical practitioner could understand that COVID-19 as a virus that has been in the human population for a very short period of time, there's still a lot of learning that needs to happen. Sure. Um, there's, there's still a lot of exploration uh, as, as it relates to the medical profession about this virus. And also I think we can all acknowledge these vaccines have been in the human population, you know, being deployed into the human population, even less than the virus itself. And so there's still a lot of learning that needs to happen. And, um, and I think that what you're doing and the amount of time that you guys have spent in terms of trying to hear from the patients, what their experience is, and then correlating that to treatment plans, uh, is very, very important. And I'll share a story with you. Um, I have a friend who called me up one day and was literally in tears and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. And this is a friend that had COVID. She had COVID pretty badly, um, has not been vaccinated. And she said, I don't know what to do. I am getting PVCs nonstop. Mm-hmm. Those are, um, preventricular contractions for, <laughs> for those of you that are listening. And, um, don't necessarily know about cardiac issues, but extra heartbeats. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So she's getting tons of runs of PVCs. She uh, said that she'll go walking. And then for three days later, she's just destroyed. Um, She's constantly in tears. And I said, I think you've got long haul COVID symptoms. You need to call. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You've learned something. I said, look, right. I said, I'm not a doctor. Right. But I said, it's worth exploring. She said, you know, I've been to my doctor, no exaggeration, 20 times. I've been to my doctor. I've been to specialists. No one knows what's wrong with me. They keep saying that I'm fine. They keep saying that the PVCs are just normal. And then they put me on a beta blocker. Um, I don't feel good on the beta blocker. I still feel tired. And so uh, it's just one story that I think you and, and your colleagues must hear thousands and thousands of these stories. And, um, the unfortunate thing I guess that the, the, the part that I take away is that she went to so many doctors and nobody could help her until she happened to have a conversation with, with a friend. And I, you know, that friend obviously is me. And I said, I think you've got long haul COVID until that point, she was feeling desperate. Like I'm never going to get a diagnosis. I'm continuing to decline. Um, and I'm sure you see that. All the time. That, 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 I mean, the story that you just related is, I mean, it's, it's almost identical to every patient that I see. And, you know, some of them, it's not 20 times to the doctor, it's 11 times to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because 
when, when they get into the, when the symptoms really flare and distress, I mean, they're extremely uncomfortable. They're very distressed. They're very worried, especially when you start, you know, your heart, your heart rate starts becoming abnormal. And, and so, you know, I, I see these discharges from all these emergency room visits and, and it's really sad because the, the patients, they just want help and they, they don't know where to turn. And when they're feeling so sick, you have to go to try to get help. And, and it's, it, you know, like so many things in COVID, it's an endless sadness. I, I mean, the, the 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 health system has just totally failed. And, you know, you know, I want to go back to the point about these doctors and what they know and don't know. And, you know, when they give advice or when they, they comment on the vaccines, I mean, they do believe that they're knowledgeable and updated. But sure. I have to talk about the sinister times that we're leave, living in. I mean, we know that there's propaganda and censorship and that propaganda exists at the media level and it exists mm-hmm. at the medical journal level. And so you have physicians in society who from a 360 degree view all they're being told is that the vaccines are safe and effective, and they're still being told that. Right. And and most of us, many of us in this country, know that those are completely false statements. And you know, even the CDC guidance that they updated, mm-hmm. if you actually look carefully at the guidance, although I thought that was an interesting pivot, is that they're trying to like you know <laughs> soften that the absurd and non scientific rigidity that they've practiced. At the same time, they argue to keep up to date with your boosters you know, which is absolutely right. absurd. And so the doctors are still believing that that's, that's the, you know, right. I, I, I derogatively, I, I dismissively call the agencies, you know, the gods of science and knowledge. And the reason why I sort of call them that is because I think most doctors, and I had this faith too, two years ago, we do think that when guidance comes out of our leading healthcare agency, it really is expert guidance based on a deep dive in the data. And I learned in COVID that is simply not the case, but most physicians still believe that to be the case. And so they're being misled and, and I'm sorry to say, but lied to, and they're not aware of it. So it's, it's a really terrible situation. Sure. And, and, and to your point, I do think, I do think that the medical community wants to do good. I don't think you have yes. an entire, you know, force of doctors that are, you know, like Dr. Evil and they're interested in com- committing genocide. Um, to your point, I don't think that they're being informed properly. And I also, I think they're overwhelmed and I don't think that they are maybe taking the time to do the due diligence to really understand what they're recommending. And it was interesting. If you talk about the, the CDC guidelines, I, I kind of chuckled when I read it and said, I would imagine that every doctor at this point should be saying, should stop recommending the vaccine. Just if you look at bullet point two, I think it was, and and I'm paraphrasing, you can correct me um, on the language, but something to the effect of that vaccinated and unvaccinated persons should not be treated any differently. Right. Uh, Just by that sentence alone, how can a doctor recommend these continued vaccines? Yeah. Um, and we could probably, I mean, that's a whole separate podcast, but what I'd like to do is, uh, talk about the, the event. Tell me what people can expect, um, sure. when they attend this event. Yeah. So it's on October, um, hopefully I get this right, Laura, 15th and 16th. I think it's, uh-huh. it's Saturday and Sunday. Um, hold on, let me get it right. Cause I don't want to say the wrong <laughs> thing, but it's in Orlando. Yeah. So it's 15th and 16th. Um, the 14th at night, we're having like a VIP dinner where the speakers are going to be there and anyone interested want to, you know, socialize or, or, or talk, uh, you know, to, to some of the clinicians. 
Um, but it's all day Saturday and, and it goes to like one o'clock on Sunday. I think we have maybe something like 12 to 15 different speakers who are going to speak on various aspects of, of treatment and on different clusters of diseases. So the neurological uh, impacts and how to treat them, uh, endocrinological. And then, you know, like for instance, I'm going to talk just really about, you know, when you look at our iRecover protocol, it, it, it's, it's also not the best term because it's not really a protocol. It's, it's more... Um, suggestions of medicines that we believe are effective. Um, and, and I've found quite a few to be quite effective. And so I'm going to talk about my experiences, my approach, you know, kind of what I do is first line and second line. And, and, you know, one other thing we should talk about, Laura, is in modern medicine, unlike, I think, history, when you read the history of medicine, but nowadays, doctors are taught to be highly, highly conservative. And basically, there's no more sort of empiric open-mindedness uh, teaching of like how to do a trial of therapy. I mean, everything on our protocol is unproven, right? Because how do you get anything proven? Well, the definition of proven nowadays is some large, double-blind, randomized controlled trial published in a high-impact journal. And by the way, when is that going to happen? Years. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you that trial will not be on one of the medicines in our protocol because almost all of the medicines, are, actually all of them, are repurposed generic mm -hmm. drugs, right? So there's no money to study a repurposed generic drug unless you have a governmental agency that wants to act in good faith and and commit money to study right. studying some some aspects of the protocols. And so, yeah. you know, we're going to be criticized that we're not practicing science, that we're not being responsible, that we that we're using unproven therapies in a hodgepodge of way. I, I mean, I've seen different hit pieces on what we do. But sure. listen, what we're doing is what I call doctoring. <laughs> we're using well, our best judgment. And here's the thing, Laura, we're using Everything we know about the mechanisms, and, and I will say this, is that in terms of this new discipline and study around these diseases, Paul Merrick really has, I think, led the global effort. I mean, Paul started working on the document which supports our protocol, and it's now mm -hmm. over, I think, 300 references. You know, it's many pages long. We go deep into all the little symptom clusters, what we think helps. You know, a lot of that is somewhat evidence-based and, you know, used from studies of similar diseases. And, and that scholarly effort is, is really, so it's, it's as based as much as we can on the published evidence, knowledge of mechanisms, knowledge of the mechanisms of action of the drugs, which we select to counteract the, you know, the pathologic mechanisms that are induced in the body. And so it, I call, I, I use this term, like it's old gumshoe medicine. I mean, we're just like, we're trying to figure this out because nobody else is. Nobody else is. And, and unless you do trials of therapy, you're not going to be able to help someone and you're never going to be able to learn what works. And waiting around for some society or agency to tell us what to use in these patients, the, the amount of suffering will just persist. And it's so pervasive that people need something now, not, not well, in two years or three years. I couldn't agree more. And, and going back to your point about um, having this go through the, the normal kind of uh, channels of study and, and acceptance within and peer review. And, um, but if you look at the, the protocols and for lack of a better term, we'll, we'll call yeah, them protocols. I know, um, the, the early intervention protocols that, that from, you know, from the inception of FLCCC, what you guys put together in terms of, 
ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and the effectiveness of these drugs. I think that there is enough data out there. And I know you've cited the Brazilian um, study, the, the study that was done in India. Um, sure. And you could you personally could probably cite 20 other instances of uh, examples when this was these drugs were used um, in very effective um, situations and had very positive outcomes for the patient. So I think that there is enough data out there. It's probably not compiled and um, displayed in the standard, um, you know, CDC, FDA protocol pathway that gets a drug, you know, that that's, that's, you know, gets a drug approved. Right. Um, but I do think that there's a tremendous amount of, of knowledge that we now have after almost three years, um, of studying, you know, your, you in particular, and several of the other doctors that have been pioneering this, I think you guys have seen tremendous outcomes, not only in the acute, you know, but as well as in the long haul, um, as well as in the vaccine injured community. Yeah, you know, to your point, you're absolutely right. The the but I would say this: the evidence of efficacy for the our other protocols. There, there's a lot of evidence, you know, in acute COVID, even in hospitalized COVID. I mean, there's tons of trials. The amount of clinical trials evidence for long haul and vaccine. First of all, vaccine injury doesn't exist, right, Laura? So <laughs> right. <laughs> it's hard to have trials on a disease that doesn't right. exist. So, but I, even in long haul. There's almost no trials. You know, you know, we know that the NIH they did one small study of IVIG um, in the vaccine injured, uh, which was published, which they claimed work. Which I don't want to get into it, but apparently many of the people in the trial uh, they didn't recognize the results that were reported because they are not better. Um, so there, you know, there's a paucity of study on how effective the drugs are in the other phases of COVID, how well they work in long haul. Now, I'll tell you from my clinical experience, quite a few of those drugs that we use in acute, they still work in long haul. And so you're right, there is a lot of evidence, but just not specific to long haul, but our clinical right. experience is, is growing. And I got to tell you, it's a pretty stimulating and, and fascinating time uh, for me intellectually as a physician, mm -hmm. because you know, I'm, I'm learning about this really complex disease. We are figuring out stuff that works, which is basically the motto of the FLCCC. I mean, that's yeah. what we've done in video, figure out how to treat this disease, right? Without waiting for, you know, these, you know, purported uh, pharma funded trials to tell us to use one of their, you know, pricey pills. And so um, we're continuing to do that. And, and you know, I, I say this statement, I say that I get every single one of my patients better to some extent. Sometimes large extent, you know, I've had patients with just these tremendous responses and recoveries. I also struggle with a portion of my patients where it's really hard to get them better. And I sometimes have to go to second and third lines of medicine. And before I find something that, you know, is, you know, sufficiently effective. Well, what I find to be interesting is the work that the FLCCC is doing is very much in concert with the Hippocratic Oath, right? First, do no harm. And um, I can say that these governmental agencies that have recommended very early on protocols um, around how to treat COVID, obviously they're not making any recommendations for vaccine injured or, or uh, long haul because they're not acknowledging that. But, but with regard to acute care, they're doing the exact opposite. And I think you know if you look at the the protocol with the remdesivir and the ventilators, we knew, uh, and I think they knew actually then, but we certainly know now 
that is the the exact opposite of being in concert with the Hippocratic Oath and first do no harm. Those patients had extremely dire outcomes and uh, were not, I, I think, not at all in concert with trying to uh, make the patient better and offer a pathway for medical intervention that was was going to see improvement in the patient. I, I think um, all everything is indicated that it that it went down the wrong path with what CDC and, and the NIH and everyone else was recommending. But again, conversely, FLCCC, which you guys were recommending, there was, uh, I think, really positive outcomes with no negative impact to the patient. Right, you're not seeing these drastic side you know side effects. No, we don't. And we don't see rebound either. <laughs> um, right. you know, I, I want to, I like the point you just made. So, you know, when you, when you look at what the FLCC has done, you know, and let me just call out something. So, so what, what has happened in COVID in my, not a, my now uh, very well-studied opinion is that the health system has revealed itself to be under what's essentially regulatory capture, right? You can see the extent to which the pharmaceutical industry dictates the policies and practices of the nation's physicians. That is how this remdesivir fraud came about, right? Literally a fraud right on television, you know, in, in the Oval Office with Fauci. And, and we know the data of remdesivir doesn't work. And if anything, it's harmful, right? And then right. you can see the frauds, the attacks on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, right? And, and in order to put, you know, protect the market for Paxlovid. And so what I what I like to kind of differentiate, I think the key aspect of what the FLCCC does, and you called out the Hippocratic Oath. And you know, here's the two things about the FLCCC is that we don't have conflicts of interest. We have no financial conflict. In fact, we have financial conflicts of survival or, or we have conflicts of survival. Like we've all lost jobs. Paul's career is over. Right. Dr. Maduri's career is over. You know, we, we've all been under attack. Um, you know, some people argue that I, we do have a conflict of interest because by promoting, uh, you know, some of the medicines, somehow it brings us more attention or money. And that's absolutely absurd. But uh, it's totally absurd. We, we we do what you said, which is that when you talk about the Hippocratic Oath, right, it's it's really about putting your patient as your primary consideration, not profit, not policy, not your career. It's your patient that you put primary and with the duty to relieve suffering, bring about healing and avoiding harm. And, and that's oftentimes a, a tall task, right? Because- yeah. Everything you do has potential harm. So what you're doing as physicians, you're always employing a risk-benefit analysis. And I think that's something that the FLCCC does really, really well, um, is that we use good judgment, our expertise, um, our rapidly developing clinical experiences, and we try to provide sound guidance, you know, on how to care for patients and without any conflicts. And, you know, we don't have any pharma money that, you know, nothing's, no one's telling us to put something on our protocol or leave something else off. And, and so you're seeing that, that, that I think is the best way to juxtapose what the FLCCC is doing and what agencies that are under regulatory capture are doing. They're completely under the influence of a profit-making industry. And it, it shows in their behavior. It shows repeatedly in their behavior. You know, and, sure. and let's let's not forget to mention Laura the constant pushing of an ineffective and highly toxic, even lethal vaccine. That's right, and, and they still want to push it, and they're now pushing it in toddlers. So That's right, and and to and, your point, I mean, as I'll speak from the layperson or the patient's perspective, um, I would certainly want to 
follow medical advice from a doctor that is unencumbered, whether it's financial incentive or even unencumbered from maybe these big insurance institutions where it's like a Kaiser Permanente or um, another type of, of big governing institution that is telling them the lane that they must stay in. Um, telling them the information that they must pass on to their patients and not allowing the doctor to do exactly what the doctor is trained to do and frankly is pro- probably has a unique skill set to do, which is critically think, look at the data, look at the science, look at the the medical information coming out and make their own medical decisions about what's best for that patient. I personally would want to follow that medical advice as opposed to medical advice from uh, a doctor or an institution that is just simply taking orders. And to your point, oftentimes those orders are coming either from a governmental agency, but most often from the pharmaceutical companies, which clearly have a very specific um, agenda. So yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and you know, that pharmaceutical company influence is, is so uh, powerful. It extends, like you said, it stands right down to the physician because mm-hmm. They pass legislation, they help pass mm-hmm. legislation, which gives massive bonuses to hospitals to use their pills and, and their potions, right? Like remdesivir. And so the hospitals seeing this huge bounty that they get when they use them, put it into rigid protocols and forcing the doctors to use mm-hmm. it, right? And, yeah. and you know, your sentiment of wanting a physician who's unencumbered, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, with, from intellectual and or policy or protocol influences by their employer, good luck with that, Laura. There's not a lot out there. I mean, those right. of us who are in independent private practice, we're a dwindling amount. And that's been right. well described over 10 years. Well, Most physicians now work for major conglomerates and health systems. They don't have that freedom. Right. I mean, if they write an ivermectin prescription for long haul, are you kidding me? That gets flagged. They, they'll have an administrator and or a boss in their office in two seconds. What are you doing using ivermectin? Right. Not only not only are they dwindling, um, probably because of, of pressure, whether it's you know pressure because of, that they can't keep afloat because there's such big conglomerates that are popping up. But are also getting pressure from a from the legislative standpoint. You know, we talked about this before, but AB two zero nine in two zero nine eight, excuse me, in California, is another classic example of declaring war on the medical practitioners that do not toe the line, that decide that they would like to actually engage in the practice of medicine. Yep. So um, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult. And I know you're you remain one of those few champions. Um, and we'll put a link in the podcast to your practice, but I know you have an individual practice and you're doing incredible work as it relates to long haul and vaccine injury, as well as uh, acute um, yeah. symptoms for, for COVID, um, and, as well as the, the FLCCC. And, and it's, it's critically important that organizations like FLCCC continue to grow and it's critically important that doctors like you have the support and ability to continue practice medicine. Yeah, and, I, I, and I appreciate that. I mean, you know, it's interesting, Laura, like I was always, you know, I'm an ICU doctor, right? So mm-hmm. to be an ICU doctor, you literally have to work for a hospital. So I've always been employed by a hospital my mm-hmm. entire career. You know, I've, you know I, I've always had an outpatient practice, but it was always tied to a hospital. Sure. Now, you know, I've left the system and it's actually really freeing. You know, I have a private practice. It's telehealth. I see patients in a lot of states. 
And the thing, the only challenge though, and this is where I feel really bad, but I don't accept insurance. I, I can't, I mean, I, there's no way I can deal with insurance companies and you, that's, that's another force that's restricting us. I mean, they're going to deny the stuff that I'm doing, the diagnosis I make, the treatments that I offer. And so unfortunately patients have to pay, uh, you know, fees to see me, but you know, at least I'm free and those that can, and I do do some pro bono, although that little fund is dwindling rapidly. Um, but, but you're right. I'm freed of the restrictions. Uh, now, I still get a tax at the medical board level, but my lawyer reassures me he doesn't think my license <laughs> will be taken away. But you brought up you brought up a really good point that, you know, you're in terms of the insurance, right? I think my, my thought is, and I'm starting to see this organically happening, is that we may get to a point in society where you have people that are just heads down, head in the sand, just going along with the pro- the program, going to these big medical institutions. But then you've got a whole other segment of society that says, we recognize that we want to have free, uh, when I say free medical care, I mean medical medical practitioners that are free to engage in the practice of medicine, not that it's actually free. And so I'm starting to see this almost organic um, division where you get, you're going to have two medical systems within our society and, um, the medical system that, that, uh, you know, again, people are going to have these big insurance policies, and then you're going to have this, this system where people are going to have to pay out of pocket and in order to get true medical care. And it's yeah. unfortunate that in a country like the United States of America that we're seeing this. I, I totally agree. For this kind of specialized care on these diseases, and and by the way, that that system, what I call the system, and I call them the system doctors and the system hospitals, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. There is a groundswell now where people are mm-hmm. asking for something different. And and the only way, you know, this is from Matthias Desmond. He says this one interesting thing is that the only way to combat totalitarianism, and I'm sorry if that's too strong a word, but we just kind of described it, right? This top-down rigidity and mm-hmm. control of the physicians. The only way to combat that is actually to build a parallel system. And mm-hmm. I am aware of several high net worth individuals that are in the healthcare space that also see this, and they mm-hmm. do want to build that system and, and, and a groups of, of, of telehealth practices that that will address the shortfalls of the system doctors. And, mm-hmm. and just know like in, in, in the history of medicine, especially in the, in the modern history, it's long been recognized that there are certain diseases that the system does very poorly at, and they tend to be complex chronic illnesses. That's really where the system doesn't do well. System does pretty well with surgeries or with what I say, cookie cutter diagnoses, like, you know, uh, cholecystitis, like your gallbladder's inflamed, urinary tract infection. I mean, that's like, you know, no problem. It's clear diagnostic criteria, clearly evidence-based medicine, you know, it's almost like a menu. But when you start to get into the gray areas of some of these illnesses that are complex, you don't see excellence there. Right. And I think we're going to start seeing more and more patients that are suffering and are afflicted by these more complex, um, I guess, this umbrella of like autoimmune disorders um, that, or, or something that looks along those lines, because the fact of the matter is we continue to deploy a vaccine into the human population that where none of us are operating under informed consent. We're starting to see, uh, I mean, you're starting to see probably more than anyone, right? These, these vaccine injuries that are cropping up. Um, and, and we're just in the beginning phases of starting to understand that. So, um, 
to your point about you're going to have you're going to have two kind of separate um, uh, me- uh, medical institutions that address uh, different aspects of the human health, whether it's you know your mainstream kind of cookie cutter uh, illnesses that affect the human body versus a more complex suite of problems, and we're going to see more and more of that. And yeah, so like said, a novel disease, right? It, it hasn't been around very long. And, right. and that's the other thing I want to say about like this conference and my approach is that, you know, what I know about treating and what I know that works about treating compared to what I want to know is, is two different things. I mean, we really are very thirsty to learn more, get, gain more knowledge and insight. And that's part of what the conference is about. Like, in fact, to, to be honest, I'm interested in going to the conference because <laughs> I want to hear my colleagues and, and I want to hear, you know, what their experiences and insights have been. And, and you know, I want to learn much more about uh, about this illness. But um, but but you're right. I, you know, that there is a parallel system that's really focusing on that and 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 it, there's going to be more and more need for it and so mm-hmm. I, I hope a lot of providers are, are willing to listen and you know i hope some of those systems of like these groups of telehealth providers that are trying to expand their capacity um you know grows because it, it's it's really what the population needs i mean we we have failed the u.s population in in covid we failed in mm-hmm. prevention acute COVID, you know, hospital COVID, and now long haul. I mean, it's been a, it, it's, it's been an amazingly consistent string of failures. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of failures. It's well, it's- you know, I just actually did a podcast with uh, teens against the mandate, which is an amazing group of young individuals that are interested in changing what's happening in this country as it relates to COVID. And Dr. Aaron Cariotti was also a part of that. And one of the things that we talked a lot about was the fact that trust in this country as it relates to the medical system has been eroded and how do we get back there? And so I think what the FLCCC is doing and this this conference will do is to start actually rebuilding trust that the American people have in the medical system. Um, It may look, the medical system on the other side of this may look different. But I think what it will do is to um, give people trust again in their doctors and the doctors themselves might actually regain trust in the the large institutions. I I think there's got to be a lot of reform, uh, in my personal opinion, at the highest levels, uh, specifically around the government institutions and what they're doing. I think we have to go back and, and revisit that. Um, but I'm really excited. I hope everyone looks up the educational summit that the FLCCC is putting on, I believe, October 15th and 16th. I've heard 14th to 16th. No, no, it's, 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 it's Saturday and Sunday. Uh, the, there's a VIP dinner Friday night, but Saturday okay. and Sunday is the 15th and 16th in Orlando. Okay, perfect. Uh, we will link this, the, the link to it in the podcast. Um, but for anyone who wants to get information, I would imagine you'll have a ton of information on the FLCCC site. Um, I encourage everyone, uh, as an individual to look at the work that the FLCCC is doing. I actually encourage everyone to go and have the conversation with their medical practitioner and encourage your medical practitioner to, to look up the FLCCC as well. Look at the protocols that they're putting together and the, the, the science and the data that they're discovering every day. Um, not only around COVID, but also long haul and also vaccine injury. So thank you so much for being with us again, Dr. Corey, the work that you're doing is incredible. I can't thank you enough. So I encourage everyone to follow and uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, Laura. My pleasure as always. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. 
we hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.